if all of my thrills were Jesus? You're supposed to say, amen, we're in church. Of course all of my thrills are Jesus. That song, um, it, it captures so well what I think is our, our heart's deepest desire. Which is more than just that my deepest desire would be to know Christ, but it's that my deepest desire would quite frankly be that my deepest desire would always be to know Christ. Living in this world, there are so many things that we can become encumbered by. So many things that can come up that distract us from being able to focus all of our thoughts and our minds on Christ. Such is certainly true as we turn back to the book of Hebrews. And we are reminded that, well, our, our faith isn't necessarily a very simple thing. I think faith in Christ is absolutely simple. I don't think there's any room for negotiation around that. I think what the Bible commands as the method and the means and, and what brings us to salvation is a simple, simple message. But you guys... This wasn't some revolutionary concocted message where somebody said, as long as you believe in Christ, you get to enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is founded upon what has a lot of rules, what has a lot of symbols. Now, I say we're returning back to the book of Hebrews this morning. I want to point out maybe for some of you as a means of celebration that we're all the way in chapter 9. And some of you are saying... Chapter 9, how many chapters are there? There's 13. That means that we're almost through. Praise the Lord. Amen. Yeah, this has been a tough book. I, I will not fault you for that. As a matter of fact, in preparation of my studies through the book of Hebrews, I've asked myself numerous times, Brother Derek, why did you choose to go to the book of Hebrews? When there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus... Okay, Leviticus probably would have been just as hard as the book of Hebrews. Well, the reason I chose the book of Hebrews is because at the core of knowing Christ is worship. You'll remember at the beginning of this year, I introduced the ministry theme for our church. One word, worship. Nothing else matters. There's not one thing more that matters in the church. Not programs, not methods, not people, but that worship would be authentic. If the congregation were down to one person, if that person were worshiping with all of their heart, then praise the Lord, God's work is being done in His church. If the church were busting at the seams and worship fell flat, it would be a detestable, abominable sight to God. Worship is what matters. So how does that connect to the book of Hebrews? Brother Derek, what's your defense for bringing us through all of this turmoil and hardship and, and a difficult book? And seeing everything that is established through the book of Hebrews and the connection with the foundation of Old Testament worship, we see that what we have is greater than what could possibly ever be construed into our mind. It shows us, as we've made our way through this book and we're coming to the end, it shows us the support, superi superiority of Christ. First of all, in all things. 
Our author in chapter 1 compares Christ to angels. He compares Him to all things that have been created. And he says, Jesus Christ is better. He compares Jesus Christ as a priest, saying that He came in the order of Melchizedek, that He is a greater priest than all of the Levitical priests that came before Him. Able to become a mediator for us between God. Christ is superior in His perfect sacrifice because while the other priests brought sacrifices of blood that came from goats and from calves and all of these things, Jesus Christ entered the holy place by His own blood. Not blood that's insufficient, needing to be constantly reapplied like some sort of old aging ointment that doesn't do anything. But rather, by the perfect blood that accomplishes Everything to the uttermost, perfect salvation, complete and whole in his perfect sacrifice. The superiority of Christ is not just seen in these things, not just in his priesthood, not just in his sacrifice, but in his promises. This is actually what we looked at last week as we looked at Hebrews chapter 8 at the new covenant that is formed in Christ's blood. Now this new covenant obviously makes the old one old. That's what new things do. What's the relationship between them? What's the relationship between this new and old covenant? Are, are, are they all that different? I heard um, MacArthur used an illustration when looking at this that has stuck with me since the time that I heard it. He made a point that he drove a new car. It, it would, now, I don't drive a new car. It turns out I don't make as much money as John MacArthur, and I'm okay with that. But... John MacArthur drove a new car. As a matter of fact, even if I did, I don't think I'd drive a new car. I would much prefer an old truck. But anyways, um, next to that, if I had a 2023 and I was driving it around, it would be a new car until 2024 rolled around, at which point it would become an old car. I think that point's important as we look at the relationship between the old and the new Because oftentimes we read this and we think by making comparison, by saying that this new thing is grander and and more rich and more pure and all this compared to the old, that we are defaming or that we're putting down the old. That's not what we're doing. Just because by point of comparison we're trying to draw out what's special about the new thing, it does not mean that we're trying to say this old system was meaningless or valueless or that it had no purpose in the time that it was created. This is the stumbling block that exists for Jewish people. But loved ones, can I also contend that this is the stumbling block that exists for the traditional church? We look at these new things and we say, I just can't set aside all that I'm comfortable with. This is the stumbling block that exists for all of God's people as we seek to know Him and come to a closer relationship with Him. Let me say again, all that matters is worship. This isn't something that's made up or, or it's not something that's produced. It's not mechanical. It's not something that we can engineer. It's not something that is made in, in any strange form. It is simply the expression of the heart that truly desires God. It can look goofy. It can look scrupulous and, and, and methodical. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It matters what it is. 
And if we can call it true worship, praise God. Well, I've jumped down a little bit of a rabbit hole looking down at my notes, and so I'm not sure how we've gotten here. Let me get back to our introduction. Chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews, we saw that Christ gave us this new priesthood. It's proven by the Old Testament text, which is incredibly important, I believe, for the original audience. It's proven by the Old Testament text that there's a need for a new priesthood and that that is established in Christ. Chapter 8 says that, well, we need a new covenant because the old one has fallen short, and now you're supposed to be saying, I guess, that Jesus Christ is superior to this old covenant. That's exactly what we're saying, and that's where we find ourselves in chapter 9. Chapter 9, where we look this morning, begins by contrasting the old with the new. Verses 1 through 10 are going to describe this old covenant, this old system, and chapters 11 through 14 are going to outline this new system. That's what I want to look at this morning. How do we compare the old with the new? Remember, we're not defaming or saying that the old was pointless, but we're saying it had this simply as a type or a shadow, simply as a picture of what was going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let us turn then and prepare to read with prayer. Father in heaven, thanks for bringing us this far in the book of Hebrews. Help us to finish it well. Not to be discouraged, God, by what makes this book difficult. But God, to seek you in the inspired words of your book. God, to understand what all of this means, not just so we can look back at the Old Testament system and explain it. That would be a waste of time if I didn't know how it mattered in my heart. So God, I pray that as we study your word, that constantly on our mind would be the question of how we are to come to know you, how we're to live this out. In Jesus' name I pray and ask for your guidance in our study this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1 begins, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, 
gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with human hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Looking at this text, now those of you that know me know that I have a a particular inclination that I struggle with. And some of you might even find yourselves in the precarious situation of being frustrated with this particular inclination. What am I talking? You don't even know what I'm talking about, woman. I'm nerdy. In fact, one of the reasons why I love the book of Hebrews, one of the reasons I love it so much is because it made my faith mean something. Now stick with me for a second. I don't know if you know what it's like to be a nerdy person, but whenever you grow up and all you hear about Christ, or even through Sunday school, is simply that it's by faith that we're saved and that save, uh, save secures us and that it provides for us and all of these things. And you're continuing as a young man to struggle with sin and to have thoughts that you can't control and you struggle to discipline your body. It is a battleground for doubt, for insecurity, for a lack of faith even. Because it all just seems superficial, trivial, top water. What are we connected to? As we look at the author of Hebrews writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, he is making the case that what is taking place is not top water or insignificant. He's making the case that it is rooted in all that God has done for the people of Israel since the beginning of time. All of a sudden, these stories in Genesis aren't unrelated mechanisms that make no sense. But now they're completely connected to the church. Oh, and this buds in my heart, similar to the buds on Aaron's staff. It buds in my heart a love for God's people. It helps me to see as Moses deals with the people of Israel, a stiff-necked people that caused Moses in Numbers to say, God, don't let me live to see my own shame. It causes me to say, God, I trust you. The book of Hebrews is significant because it shows us that there is a connection to what is old. Now, I do not mean to frustrate you this morning because I'm going to be honest. There's a great part of me that looks at verse 1, describing this earthly place of holiness and this special tent in verse 2 and this lampstand and this table and the bread of the presence and this holy place and the second curtain and this most holy place and this golden altar and this incense and the Ark of the Covenant. 
And I want to stop for just a second and I want to say, now come with me on a journey to the book of Leviticus as we look at all of these instructions. We're going to begin an exodus and look at how God told Moses on Mount Sinai to build this tent of meeting. The dimensions, how far it would go. But see, here's the problem. I I get to verse 5 in this text and some of you are going to find great relief in verse 5. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Now, as I studied for this, I'm going to be honest, I fell down the rabbit hole. And I got to verse 5 and I thought about how I would share this with my church family, how I would proclaim God's word. And I said, it would be unfaithful to the text to share everything that I've just studied. The author himself says of these things we cannot speak in detail. So I ask, what is it that we need to observe from all of these? Do we simply need to read what the text says? I think there is a little bit of understanding that has to go behind this. And that is that our author is comparing and contrasting. This is what we're seeing in the text. What was old with what is in the new. And so he begins with this place of meeting. That is the sanctuary. Now, the sanctuary, if you're familiar with it, the temple of God, not the one that was built in Jerusalem, but even the tent or the tabernacle that the people of Israel had as they wandered throughout the wilderness, it had specific dimensions. Its size was commanded by God. Every detail, it says, had regulations for worship that came from a divine place. Now, don't we have regulations for worship today? Absolutely we do. God cares about how He is worshipped. Of this tense, what is significant is that this is the place where God would meet them. Now I said the stumbling block to a Jewish audience as they're presented with the gospel is simply that they have to admit that what they had was old because it was a shadow, it was a type. It wasn't substantial in the sense that the sacrifices did anything. They were symbolic to looking towards the sacrifice of God. What is it then that makes this such a stumbling block? Well, it's that the imagery is so dang beautiful. In this tent, there was the first section. So imagine with me walking into the tent of the tabernacle. It's divided in sections, and you can walk into the the middle section. Now, you wouldn't have been allowed to unless you were a priest, but um, just imagine that we walk in there. In there, there's these three items. The lampstand, the table, and well, the table has the bread of presence on it, and our author didn't even mention that there's a washing pool for, for washing things. He left that out. We'll just focus then on the lampstand and the table. The bread of presence. I ask you, why were those things in the tabernacle? It's quite simple to be a reminder that it was God that led the people of Israel out of Egypt. He was literally the light unto their path that guided them. Here's the symbol. Christ becomes the light unto the Christian's path that guides us. As a matter of fact, the Word says that the Word becomes a light unto our path that would direct our footsteps. There is then on the table, the bread of presence, a reminder that while the people were in the wilderness, as they were hungry, they cried out to God and they asked for food and and He provided it to them. He rained down manna. Christ 
becomes the one who feeds us. He meets all of our needs. In God's sovereignty, He is the one that rains down manna for His people and provides for them. In a greater sense, if we're speaking of spiritual things, He has not left us or abandoned us in some sort of wandering off on our own sort of way, but He has left us with a complete word. Fulfilled and perfected. Behind the second curtain, as we move on past it, you can imagine this was the holy place, the temple that you're not allowed to go into unless you were a priest. But even beyond that, inside of the temple, there's a place that even the priest can't go into unless they're the high priest called the most holy place. The most holy place. Separated by a curtain. All the while, all of these wonderful symbols of what is given to the people of Israel, these reminders of God being a light to their path, being that which feeds them, that which washes and purifies them and makes them clean, that which would take place in the holy of holy places would be the atonement. Atonement. Now, that's a weird word. How many of you know what atonement is? Raise your hand. We'll ask for a definition. It's a weird word. It's not one that we, we use very often. And so I say the way to remember what atonement means is just to break it down. At one meant. Atonement means to be made at one with God. To be made right, to have a restored relationship, to no longer have separation that comes as a consequence of sin. What would take place in this holy of holy places, the most holy places where there's this golden altar, where there's the incense going up to Israel, where the Ark of the Covenant is, where it is said that God meets with man in the mercy seat of Christ. Where it possessed Aaron's budded staff, the tablets of the covenant. Where sitting on top of the lid were two cherubim or two angels with wings that stretched out before them, covering their eyes where the wings would nearly meet together. At that point is where God would meet with man, where he would dwell amongst his people. Now, that's all I'm allowed to say because verse 5 says, of these things we can not now speak in detail. But let me just commend to you it is fascinating. The more that we understand or even endeavor to understand these symbols, why God specifically commanded the people to do what he did in this way, the more we are able to see what is taking place in Christ. Our author decides to focus on the fact that these special preparations, all of this special structures that took place, having thus been made, this is in verse 6, is made for particular ritual duties. Continuously, the priests going in and making sacrifices to purify the people, to forgive sins, all of these different things. But that the separate distinction in the holy of holy places, as we look at verse 7, only the high priest could enter into this, and he but once a year. What was God saying in creating all of this? Verse 9 tells us, all of this was saying, I'm sorry, this is verse 8. All of this was saying, or the author says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place 
The way into dwelling with God, the way into spending time with God, the way into having a relationship with Him, the way into being transformed with Him, the way that your faith is not superficial and trivial and top water had not yet been opened as long as the first section was still standing. Well, that's troubling, isn't it? God made a special covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai that He would be their God and they would be His people, fulfilling the promise that He gave to Abraham to, to make Him a nation of a great multitude that would become a blessing to the whole world. All of these things, and it's still not accomplished. Instead, we just have a symbol of God's dwelling place among man. That the people of Israel, absolutely, in a certain sense of the word, are blessed because God dwells among them, but He doesn't dwell with them. This holy place is separated. It keeps them from it. And what is this issue that's presented that the priest in verse 7, he but once a year would go in taking blood, which he offers for himself, that he would go in and that he would make a sacrifice in this holy of holy places. Now, don't get alarmed. I'm still going to do my very, very best not to get totally nerdy here. But I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about this ritual for the Day of Atonement. Now, this day came once a year for the people of Israel, and the high priest had a special duty. It was a busy day. He'd offer something like 20 goats and lambs before he'd ever get the chance to enter into the, into the tabernacle. It was a bloody day. He would go through all of these rituals, making sure that he makes sacrifices for the people of Israel. But most importantly, he needs to wash himself. He needs to make himself right before God. And he's going to do all of these sacrifices to confess his own sins before God, to make sure that he is in a right position to enter into the place where now God dwells with his people. What I think is most amazing about all of this is if you know anything about the priest, not only are the dimensions of this table or, or the four foot standing table and the dimensions of the tents and everything, not only are they amazing, but what the priest wears is prescribed. He has to wear an ephod made of scarlet and blue and purple colors. And on the shoulders, he has two pieces of onyx that have the 12 tribes of Israel's names on them. All these wonderful little details that are fascinating to look at. And it's beautiful. I mean, I, as I read about them, I, I can't help myself but to Google artistic rendering of the ephod. And I, I just want to look at it. It's gorgeous. But what does he do before he goes into the tabernacle? What does he do before he goes into the holy of holy places? What does he do before he goes and he meets with God on behalf of all of the people? Well, after he's made all of these sacrifices, he goes and he washes himself and he has to put on not the golden ephod. Not all the pretty linens. He puts on a white, simple linen robe. Even he becomes a type or a shadow or a picture of Jesus Christ who has the work of blessing all or, or of, of becoming the mediator for God's people, for, for forgiving their sins, for intermediating for them, who takes off all of his glory, 
takes off all of his wonder and his splendor, all of his heavenly wonder, so that he can come and dwell amongst man. Now, the white is incredibly significant because in doing this, he's still holy, he's perfect, and he's without blemish. He takes off his wonder and his splendor, but he does not take away his holiness. Well, this is Jesus Christ coming into the world, coming in amongst the people that he could be with them, that he can identify with them. This is what makes this atonement possible at all, that he identifies with the people. He doesn't sacrifice his holiness, but now he goes in and he dwells in the holy place, not the holy place created by man, nothing here on earth, but he's going to go into the holy place that is in heaven. He's going to go to the throne of God, By his own blood, he's going to sprinkle it on the place, the mercy seat of God. So that all those that would believe in him would be forgiven. Now what's amazing about this is, even in the Old Testament, the system of going into the holy of holy places, but once a year, what the high priest would do, you would think that that would be for all the sins of Israel, right? No. No. These are only for the sins that the people don't know about. Now, if you think that you feel guilty for all of the sins that you do know about, hold on to your hats because this Bible says there's sins that you don't know about. This particular atonement was for the sins of the people that they unintentionally committed. The sins that they didn't know about, the sins that they didn't mean to do it, but they still did it because it was against God's will. These are easy to fall into. After he came out of the tabernacle, oh, actually, before he went in, there were two goats that were sacrificed, and they would draw up lots for the goats to decide which one would become the sacrifice and which one would become the scapegoat. We see the major issue in this old system in that there had to be a scapegoat. Now, I can tell I'm losing some of you. Now, hold on tight because we're about to wrap this up and talk about the new covenant, that which is simple and beautiful and wonderful, and you're going to see how all of this connects if you just hang in there for a little bit longer. You see, the scapegoat, the one that's not sacrificed, the one that wouldn't produce the blood that the high priest would take into the, into the altar, they would tie a red string, or a scarlet, sorry, a scarlet twine around his horn, and they would take him out no more than a Sabbath's journey into the wilderness, and they would let him go. Now, you might ask, why do they take him so far away? They didn't want to look at him. Because... All of these wonderful symbols that are created in this wonderful system that exists, all of these atoning sacrifices, you'd think this would be the most celebrated day of the year, that Israel would stand before God and they'd be like, hey, as long as I've done the work of repentance and restoration and made all the sacrifices that I needed to be right with God, now my unintentional sins have been forgiven. I've never been closer to God before. I mean, this is like revival energy, wouldn't you think? Everything's separated. Except I've got this dang goat following me around, reminding me that my sins had to be forgiven of. So take it as far away as you can so that I don't have to look at it anymore. Man, this is Christians every time they turn to their Bible. They say, I've experienced great and wonderful relationship with God and my fellowship with believers is amazing. As long as we don't open the Bible and we don't look at what reveals sinfulness, that which reveals the wickedness inside of me, because then that just reminds me how much I need Jesus. 
We run away from it. We run away from conviction. And worst of all, when we run away from conviction, I think most of all what happens is we turn that into what we deceive ourselves into thinking is righteous indignation, when really all that we're doing is we're giving into that sinfulness more, creating more separation, blinding us even more. It's no wonder Moses cried out and said, God, don't let me live to see my shame. Because this is what the people who he was supposed to be leading were doing. He was giving them the word of God. He was trying to get them to be a people that pursued God, a people that knew God, but never was it completely worked out. Never was it completely worked out. And so what happened? They continued to rebel. God, don't let me live to see my own sin. And when they rebelled, fine. You know what? We're imperfect people. That's why we have the sacrificial system. Let's go. Let's make the sacrifices. Let's get right with God. Let's get at one with God. Let's be atoned for. But rather than actually worshiping the way that they were supposed to, they rebelled. They rebelled even more because they did what was right in their own eyes. I want to speed this up. This sacrifice is limited, and it gives us the depiction that access to God is limited. It's a special space tells us that it's limited. The scapegoat reminds us that Israel's sin still was there. What does all of this have to do with what is given to us in a greater sense in the new covenant? Verse 11 says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to have, that have come, then even the greater and the more perfect tent not made with hands in creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not made by means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That's the first one. It's an eternal redemption. Going on. It says that the blood of goats sprinkling defiled a person with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh. Well, that sanctified the flesh. But now what does Christ do? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, not the flesh, but what does it purify? Our conscience. It purifies our conscience. The old fell short and that it certainly brought people closer to God, but it could never purify their conscience. It could never make their minds at peace. It could never give them real rest the way that the new covenant because of Christ. Now, what do we get to do with the thoughts of a young man that continue to lead us into a lacking or a dwindling faith? We get to take it to God, and with a pure conscience, we get to know that He has taken care of all of it. With confidence that the work that He is applying is being applied not just to an altar in the heavenly places, but directly to our hearts. The blood of God is being applied directly in the hearts where the Spirit of God is dwelling so that my conscience can be cleared of my sin. I can actually have peace with myself. Because God is changing me. If you've grown up in church all of your life, and this has been the method that you have viewed it, and you have wrestled with sin. That's everyone sitting here this morning. You have probably struggled with this issue. 
How can my conscience be washed clean of my sinfulness? How is it possible that I can come to God truly confident in all that He has done, knowing everything that I have done, knowing that I don't even realize how bad it is because it's impossible for me to understand? Our confidence is in this greater covenant. This greater covenant that is established through a greater sacrifice, through a greater priest that purifies our conscience, that makes us totally clean before Him as we walk up to the throne of God to have confidence before Him because His sacrifice has done all of the work. I can't think of anything more reassuring than to know that the work of God has been completed in Christ. Now I say that this has become a stumbling block for the Jews. And I said that I think it's the stumbling block for the traditional church today, too. Why? Quite simply because I think we like feeling a little bit guilty. What do you mean, we like feeling a little bit guilty? I think we're addicted to it. I think we're addicted to feeling guilty, so much so that we like to feel guilty because that makes us think that we're worshiping God in an authentic way as we're moved with contrition. This greater sacrifice of God is greater than that system which existed in the Old Testament because our worship is not based on the sorrows of remorse for being imperfect before God. Rather, it is based on the confidence of God's perfection that we come and stand before Him. The reason Christians are able to experience joy and love and peace and all of these wonderful attributes ascribed to us by the Spirit of God, by the fruit of, that is budding within our hearts as we seek to be conformed to the image of Christ is simply because the blood was a greater sacrifice. There is no guilt in the kingdom of God such as we are confident to repent of our sinfulness, we should be confident to move forward. The invitation then this morning is very simple. To give me the weary and the lowly in heart to come those who are burdened. To leave your burdens with God. And to leave knowing that His joy abounds in you because He loves you. That His sacrifice has been made complete by the outworking of your faith. That you can live it out today and every day simply by trusting in Christ. Father in heaven, I pray this morning. God, I pray for those here in the church building. I pray for those listening online to our church podcast. God, I pray, I pray for those out visiting other churches. God, I pray that we would recognize that we are rebellious people before you. And that we would seek you. God, that we wouldn't be addicted to to constantly repenting of the same sin over and over again, that we wouldn't become uh, calloused in our conviction, that it would turn even into greater sin, but God, that we would stand before you with the confidence of knowing that all things have been laid aside, that reconciliation is available to us through your sacrifice, that even friendships that have been lost can be restored by seeking you. God, we praise your name for the great sacrifice that you've made for us. And we stand 
and honor of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.